So tonight we're coming to the Gospel of uh, John again in chapter 1, and especially verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. This flows out of the opening verses there, 1 and 2, that we looked at this morning, the word of Christmas, and tonight we come to the life of Christmas, and especially how Jesus, the word of God, is our creator, the maker of all things. I remember as a brand new Christian, the Lord re-sparked in me the love for reading and, and investigation and so forth. And I remember reading the story of Napoleon marching back after defeat in Russia with his, with his soldiers. And, you know, during the whole Enlightenment and the, and the French Revolution and all of that that took place in France, atheism was very, very rampant. And he was overhearing his soldiers walking behind him, and they were philosophizing and, and fomenting about how there is no God. There is no God in the world. There's no such thing as God. And eventually, Napoleon had had it with the conversation going on among his leaders. They were walking at night, and the stars were out. And he said then, who made these, he said to them. And they had no answer. There is no way that this world, with all of its vast variety and immensity and bounty and intricacy, came about without a God. That's one of the silliest things that can ever be found in the mind of man. And I speak as one who used to be atheistic as a young person. And I'm not talking here about the fact that the revelation of God that all men see everywhere that we read in the Bible, that yes, men see God and they suppress that truth. That's the teaching of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. There's not a voice. There's not a language in the world that doesn't see this but they suppress it. Or Romans chapter 1 speaks of of God making himself known. The attributes of God are evidently seen through the things that are created. But just from a standpoint of reason, how how do we get to where we are in this beautiful world, this amazing world, this cosmos? The word cosmos has the idea of of an ordered um, system. And you see the vastness and and wonder that we have learned through the sciences and and through mathematics and so forth. And I want to say that if a God is demanded by this creation, there is no God like the God of the Bible for being that creator. You better come up with a better God than the one in Scripture because he is the only God, much less he is leading the pack. I remember being in middle school and in public school and we were taught some of the gods and the, and the cosmologies of the Indian tribes in western New York. And I remember hearing about a, a tribe that believed that the world was set on the back of a giant turtle. I said, wow, that's a very interesting story. They never taught us Genesis 1 in middle school, but they taught us about a giant turtle god that upheld the world. Well, tonight we come to the word who is God, as we saw this morning, who is then also the creator in verse 3. In 1 and 2, this word of Christmas is eternal. He is uniquely face to face. He's there at the beginning of creation. He was already uh, eternally existent, and he is face to face with God, and yet at the same time is himself God. That's the basis of our Trinitarian faith, that there are three persons, With one nature. This one who is God, who was in the beginning with God, was not inactive, therefore, 
But as we see in verse 3, he makes all things. The word is the creator. And he certainly is no creature then. All things came into being through him. Verse 3a, there's the positive statement. Nothing came into being which has been created apart from him, says 3b. There's the negative. This is a little bit of a, of a clumsy sentence in the Greek, and it comes out clumsy in the English. But it's very, very clear in what it's teaching us, that the absolute creator of all things includes the word along with the Father. You take that, all things, all things came into being. They were made and they continue to this time as the force of the verb. Take the great width and breadth of all the good creation of the Lord that we read of in Genesis 1. From top to bottom, from the greatest to the least, from angels above and their unnumbered myriads to all of the gnats that we find in this world which we're thankful are not around at this time of year. From men to mice, all things visible and invisible, it is this word who became flesh that made them all. And that means that if he has made them all, he is greater than them all. The Lord is greater than all suns and moons and stars and planets combined, for he is their maker and their sustainer. He is not himself a created light but he is God the light who shines eternally from the Father and in the Comforter. The light who makes light and in whose light we see light. Or we see nothing at all apart from that light. He who made all eyes, who is himself all eye. And as we mentioned this morning, this word is the absolute sin quanon of creation. Sin quanon is a famous Latin phrase which means without which nothing. Without this one, the word, nothing has been made that has been made. It's exhaustive. This is so different than the pagan ideology that said there's various gods who are making all kinds of different things. Or in the Greek idea, there's not a lot of making because matter itself is eternal. But our God, the word, has made all things. Nothing that you have ever seen, nothing that you have ever heard, nothing that you have ever felt, nothing in all of your vast but limited experience, all, all of it comes from Him. You've never seen anything that's not been made by the Word who later is made flesh. Paul writes in Colossians 1 this magnificent statement, for by Him All things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. That is such an excellent verse because of the ideology of the philosophy of the the ancient world. They were really investigative of spiritual things, and they believed that there were all of these demons and angels everywhere, and that crowded their worldview And the gospel comes and shines light upon that. Whatever they are, they are all made and under the word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 says something similar to the Son. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain and they will all grow old like a garment. Now notice the phrase here does not say all things came into being um, uh, 
by him, or just directly of him, but rather through him. And it uses a phrase here that means agency. In other words, the second person of the Trinity, the word who is God, is the agent. He is the builder with God the Father making all things. We read in Hebrews 1, which begins with the Son, through whom God made the worlds, laid the foundations of the earth, the heavens, the works of his hands, the angels who are the ministering spirits to Jesus, commanded to worship the word. So understand something. When we say that that Jesus, the word, is the agent, we're not detracting from his creatorship one bit. We're not saying, well, he's only a means. He's only an agent. I mean, what sort of agent can make things out of nothing? Ex nihilo. Make worlds upon worlds. Create life all the way from the simplest forms of life to the most complex. This is what we mean is that there is, what we mean by this in in the scriptures is that there is an orderliness about Trinitarian creation. Never do we read of the Son creating all things by the Father, but rather vice versa. Nevertheless, everything created at the end owes its beginning, its being to the Father, to the Son, and of course in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, to the Holy Spirit. If it ain't made by the Word, it ain't made. All things come from Him. Nothing that is exists apart from His being the Maker, the Creator. For apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. A couple of observations then here quickly under this first point, that the Word made all things. Number one, This is further indication, of course, of Christ's deity, of what we saw this morning, that the Word was God. We expect, at the beginning, the creating act of Genesis 1. We're not disappointed, and to the Word is ascribed all of the content of creation. Everything comes from the hand of the Word. This, secondly, upholds the centrality of God the Son, both as creator as well as redeemer. We don't look at at Jesus, the Son of God, just as this wonderful person who saves us from our sins. He also, first and foremost, is God, and he is the creator. And that's an important part of the Christian faith. When we diminish that, we're diminishing Christ, and we're diminishing the message of both the Bible and the gospel in particular. I have a book on my shelf from the late D. James Kennedy. It's one of my favorites. He co-authored a book called, What If Jesus Never Lived?, And he goes through and he has chapter after chapter and shows the impact of the Christian gospel of Jesus Christ upon all of these various fields, whether it's science or the arts or or, um, you name it. Um, Jesus has impacted this whole world in a vast variety of ways. What if Jesus never lived? Then it would affect art. It would affect music. It would affect our way of living. It would affect our work work ethic and, and so forth. And he catalogs these good qualities the good effect of Christ the Savior. The passage that we're looking at today tells us something different, something more. If there were not the Word, if there was not Jesus, there wouldn't be no world at all. We would not be. That's the point of this passage. And then thirdly, moreover, this passage is a mighty reply to those who would make Jesus only into a creature. If the word is a part of the creation, an exalted angel or some kind of an intermediary being between God and man, as, 
as those of the kingdom hall would teach you, a God between God and the world but made, then this passage must teach a self-genesis on the part of Jesus. Jesus must have made himself. Because here it says that the word made all created things. If he's created, then he made himself. And that's a pretty good trick. Only God, who is himself unmade, makes all things. All which is made is not God. And to follow John here, the word did not make himself. He made all created things, he himself being unmade. We've already underlined that he was in existence with God, was God, at the beginning, before creation occurred, before time and space. Further evidence of his creatorship is given in verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. So, none know him who do not know him then as God. God come in the flesh, as we will see down the line. Such a profound word here in John chapter 1. Augustine caught the realities of the incarnation and the eternal existence of our creator, the word, when he wrote these lines in his famous sermon on Christmas. He through whom time was made was made in time. And he, older by eternity than the world itself, was younger in age than any of his servants in the world. He who made man was made man. He was given existence by a mother whom he brought into existence. He was carried in hands which he formed. He nursed at breasts which he filled. He cried like a baby in the manger in speechless infancy. This word without which human eloquence is speechless. We would add this word without which nothing. Sin quanon. The word then is the life. In him was life, verse 4, begins to take us uh, into the next section. He is the prince of life. He is the prince of all life. He is so in two senses then. First of all, as we've already seen, he's the absolute creator of natural life, and especially the life of man, as it goes on and speaks about him enlightening every man that comes into the world. He's the absolute creator of natural life. All things come into existence by him. He is the light of life, he, of all life, of all organisms, of all flora and fauna, from high to low, creatures of the sea, whether in the depths of the oceans or creatures upon the land, whether, whether animals or plants, and uh, of all things in the sky. He is the first and the last, the sustainer and maker. He is the king, the fountain and foundation of all, as all is made of him. He made every angel. There's not a single angel, fallen or standing, whether they are seraphim or cherubim, that do not owe him their existence. He made every man, every woman, every child, born and unborn. He is the possessor of all that he has made. He is the Lord of the quick and the dead. And he is the maker of all man's making. Everything that man does ultimately flows from his maker. So everything is of him. I was thinking about this the other day as I was meditating on this message and thinking about what I was going to talk about. Every single bird, every single bird. I wish John Kent were here tonight. 
every feather, every beak, all of, all of them, all their organs, all their number and patterns and, and breath. Jesus said, not a sparrow falls apart from the Father, but they also do not fall apart from the Son or apart from the Spirit. I was sitting there watching near my home. Uh, there was a, uh, I don't know if they're, I guess they're phone lines that go across three in a row. I was watching these birds sitting on these lines, 20 that counted them. And they took turns hopping back and forth from one line to the other. And, I, and then one of them kind of flew over here. I'm going, why are you going over there? Why don't you go with, with your pails over there? And, you know, God is the one who has made those creatures and sustains them and sovereignly leads them. Not a single one of them does anything apart from our glorious Savior, Jesus. So I'm sitting here watching them, all made by the word. God, the word, knows all the calculations of their movements and controls every flap of their wings. And so all that he makes all that is in the world of man as well. Mathematics and sciences are of him as well. As I watch those birds and I'm looking at them, I notice there was another bird up in the sky made out of metal, flying at 33,000 feet. Just an amazing ability that we're able to fly. Those gifts of science and of mathematics and understanding aviation come from above and are gifts of God. What intelligence has gone into that flying machine, and yet all, ultimately, of God, the Word? Likewise, this week I was reading a funny story. Well, not a funny story. I guess it was kind of a funny story. A fellow, I think his name was Van Newman. Uh, he was a man who was uh, something of a genius. He worked on the Manhattan Project, which uh, built the atom bomb. At the age of 19, this man redefined numbers. Redefine numbers. I think by the time I was 19, I, could, I learned how to hold my fork correctly. When he was a boy, he noticed that his mother was just gazing out the window at something. And he uh, interrupted her daydreaming and said, Mother, what are you calculating? That's the kind of bent that this man had. He could do math problems in his head at such a young age. But what would he do with the great numbers that God deals with in the creation that he has made, especially as he looks to those heavens above? In his comments on the Gospel of John, uh, Kent Hughes discusses the stars above which the Word has made. He comments on Revelation 4.11 of Jesus, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And 1 Corinthians 8.6, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came, and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, and through whom we live. He goes on and says there are about 100 billion stars in the average galaxy, and there are at least 100 million galaxies in known space. Einstein believed that we have scanned with our largest telescopes only one billionth of theoretical space. This means that there are probably something like, and he's got a large number that's this long, with there must be 20 zeros. Um, this many stars in space, he calls it 10 octillion. How many is an octillion? 1,000 thousands equals a million. 1,000 millions, a billion. 1,000 billions, a trillion. 
1,000 trillions a quadrillion, 1,000 quadrillions a quintillion, 1,000 quintillions a sextillion, 1,000 sextillions a septillion, 1,000 septillions an octillion. That's the number of stars that are estimated. So 10 octillion is a 10 with 27 zeros behind it. And Jesus created them all. This is the, the largeness. This is the greatness of our Redeemer. I remember my professor in college making the remark. He said, it seems like God has made the universe so grand on such a great scale to humble us and remind us of how great God is. Not to fall down and to worship the stars or to worship space or the bigness of creation or the creature, but to worship the Lord who made all things. So everything that we have ever seen, heard, touched, or felt are of him. The life of mankind is his natural existence. That's what he speaks of in making everything naturally. But we see how in John's gospel it begins to bleed over into our need for salvation. The word is more than a natural light and life to us. This gets us to another higher heavenly life, a life that had been forfeited in sin. This is getting to the heart of eternal life now as we talk about the life of Christmas. He is the creator of all nature, but he's also the bringer of everlasting life and the restoration that comes through the word now as our Savior, and hence the life of Christmas. John links light with life from the word, which is in contrast to darkness in the rest of verse 4 and verse 5. Darkness in Genesis 1 is not to be read as spiritual darkness. That's a huge mistake. If you take the darkness that is made there as something other than the good creation of God, you get into all this kind of yin and yang kind of stuff that if you're introducing that into Genesis 1, um, Augustine and others have made the mistake of trying to read the light and darkness uh, metaphysically, uh, ethically in John 1 back into Genesis chapter 1. But John does pick up on the natural and spiritualizes it often in his gospel. And he did that because that's what Jesus did. The natural is used as an intro, as a, a porch, as it were. But you can't stop there as it's woven all throughout this great gospel and leads us into the supernatural. We see in the next chapter, John chapter 2, the natural temporal life turned wondrously. The water of the, of the marriage feast turned into wine, something radically different, something new. And that's a hint of the eternal life. In chapter 3, the natural birth is not enough for Nicodemus. He must be born again. In John 4, the temporal thirst of the woman at the well in Samaria is used to lead her to thirst for everlasting waters of salvation. The lame man in John chapter 5 is healed at the pool of Bethesda. He is made to walk in a picture of we sinners who are lame and laid before God in judgment and wrath, and he causes us to rise and to walk and to even dance, as it were, on the Sabbath day. I wonder if Godfrey will deal with that. Bread in chapter 6, the manna, even though supernaturally given, is looking to Jesus, the living bread, who if you eat his bread, if you, 
If you uh, receive him, you have everlasting life. The outpouring of all that water in John chapter 7 at the end of the feast. And they pour out these large containers of water on the dry ground. And Jesus says, come to me and drink and you will have rivers of water coming out of, out of the inner person. Light in John 8 and 9. A shepherd calling a sheep, laying down his life for them in John 10. All point to the spirituality and eternality of eternal life. Natural death in chapter 11 with the resurrection of, of, uh, of um, Lazarus. That he would die again. But it points to a resurrection where there will no longer be any death. Our temple in Passover is highlighted in John 12 and 13. And 14 through 17, our way to the Father's palace. Our vine for our branch and our fruit. Our comforter and keeper in his spirit. And Jesus, who is the true high priest, who leads us into the holiest of all that is above. The question that is raised here then about him being the life of Christmas is, is he your life in this full and rich way of grace. That's where John is leading us in the middle and latter parts of these 18 verses. Recognize all men are going to give an account in the end to their maker. We will stand before the one who made us, every single one of us, little children to the aged. And they're going to stand before this maker who is the word who has since been made flesh. What will it be like to stand before the one in whom and by whom all things were made, including you, and you find yourself entirely ignorant of him personally? And to think that this maker, the life of Christmas, came down for you to rescue you and to bring the life and light of salvation to you. But in the words of verse 10, he was in the world that was made through him and the world did not know him. That is the worst possible darkness indeed. To have this kind of blindness, this kind of willing rebellion is a precursor to the outer darkness of everlasting wrath that those who are set on the left hand of the Lord Jesus will face. So praise the word of Christmas, that he is also the life of Christmas, that he opened your blind and rebellious eyes to behold him full of grace and truth, who is your life, and live for him in fellowship with him as your all in all who loved you so much that he gave himself for you. What greater or better or higher purpose could there be in life than to pursue and to own him and to have fellowship with him? John Stott made this observation. He said, if we had to sum up in a single brief sentence what life is all about, why Jesus came into this world to live and die and rise, And what God is up to in the long, drawn-out historical process, both B.C. and A.D., it would be difficult to find a more succinct explanation than this. God is making human beings more human by making them more like Christ. And boy, how we need that in the world today. We're losing our humanity. We're losing that image of God that we should be recognizing in us but more than just making us more human by making us more like Christ, we're being fitted for an everlasting glory 
to inherit a kingdom of light, which we'll come to, Lord willing, next time with verse 5, where the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend or apprehend or overcame it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being our maker. You are the one who has made us. We thank you, Lord, for your remaking us. We thank you for the wonders of the new birth. We thank you for making us new creatures, heavenly creatures, creatures being fitted for that new heavens and the new earth that were mentioned in our prayer tonight. We thank you, Lord, for your grand plan, your first and foremost desire above everything else is not our redemption. It is rather your glory, and you will have all glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, through what the Son has done. And Lord, it's our privilege to go along, as it were, for the ride, to know, Lord, that you are greatly glorified in saving sinners, to pluck them out of darkness and to bring them into your marvelous light, to take those who are dropping uh, into perdition, into damnation, and to cause their feet to be planted upon a rock that can never be moved, where there's no separation, that nothing can divide us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, who is our life. We ask, Lord, that this wonderful message would be brought more powerfully throughout our very needy planet. Oh, Lord, may your light shine above the darkness, especially at this time of year where hopefully hearts are more tender to the message of the word. Oh, help, we pray, many ears to be opened uh, to the riches of the gospel found in these beautiful Christmas carols and hymns. May they hear Jesus, the word, who is God, who is our maker, and turn to him. We pray this in his name. Amen.